What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. What's up, family? This is Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, we're joined by Lenore Anderson to discuss her book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. Lenore Anderson is the founder and president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which has won reforms to reduce incarceration and expand community safety programs across the country. She's a former chief of policy of the San Francisco DA's office, former director of public safety for the Oakland mayor, and the recipient of the James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award, and so much more. She lives with her family in Oakland, and this is her first book. Lenore, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, okay, Lenore, I read your bio just like it is in the book. Um, and, you know, before anything else, my listeners are going to want to know which mayor. Uh, Ron Dellums. Ron Dellums. Talk about working in Ron Dellums office, right? A, a black man that was plucked from the movement and sent by the people to, to go serve, uh, who has this amazing legacy. Um, and then came back to, to be the mayor of a city, which is a little different than, than being in Congress. But clearly he had a, a, a progressive analysis around public safety and how it was being implemented, particularly against black bodies. You know, I uh, when I was in the mayor's office, it was in, at a time when homicides were uh, skyrocketing and, you know, we're living in similar uh, dark times. And one of the things that stood out to me so strong was this immense gap you know, so many people in our city are working overtime to stop the violence, and yet it's very difficult for the myriad of grassroots organizations doing the work to get the kind of support they need to grow and grow, which is what we need. So I think that was one of the main things that I, I took away from my time uh, with the city and was this strong need to close that gap between where public safety resources uh, go um, and uh, the community organizations on the front lines. We're going to come back to that in more detail. So, was it after that then? Then you went to go work for the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. Yep, I went to the DA's. So, at the time, uh, San Francisco was also uh, facing a you know significant uh, challenges with homicides and. Um, I was in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office under then District Attorney uh, Kamala Harris. District Attorney's offices tend to send people to jail, and Kamala Harris certainly had a policy of sending folks to jail. Did you share, did you hold the the viewpoints that you have now around perhaps funneling people um, by the tens of thousands into prisons might not be the way that we address crime then? Um, And if so... How are you maneuvering that viewpoint inside of a DA's office? So I, uh, you know, be, I have spent the last 25 years uh, working to reform criminal justice and public safety systems. I, you know, shortly after law school, I uh, was at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and uh, working on the uh, Books Not Bars campaign to close California's youth prisons. Um, you know, so I've had a, a career-long commitment to transformed crime policy. 
um, when one of the things that uh, stood out to me as a grassroots organizer, uh, you know, right after law school, you know, we would bring, um, you know, uh, folks whose kids were incarcerated, parents of incarcerated youth up to state capitals to meet with legislators. And it was always so jarring to me to listen to the legislators' responses as if these parents are not interested in public safety. And it was such a backwards way of looking at it. It's like, actually, no, these are parents whose children have been unprotected and unsafe long before they ever committed a crime. And then when we try and change that criminal justice policy, we are somehow painted as if we don't believe in safety. So part of what I was aiming to do when I went into, you know, local government and all the various hats I've worn in local government, including the DA's office, was I was trying to look at this issue from inside uh, these systems. And, you know, what I found um, it was that, you know, even when there are good, hardworking folks who are trying to um, advance alternatives to incarceration, advance smarter approaches to, you know, accountability, the, it, it, there are so few options, right? You know, these, these public safety systems have just that one lever that you can pull. And, you know, the sort of general felonies unit calendars inside courtrooms, they just churn out, um, you know, either convictions or plea deals. And it's just kind of this, you know, sort of operating on its own access process that's really not informed by what's happening at the neighborhood level or what survivors want or what would be best for accountability for the person who uh, committed harm. And so that that huge gap between the sort of run-of-the-mill what's happening inside these systems is hard for people to stop, even when that's the intent, right? Even when they want to see these systems work different. So I think that was one of my main takeaways from my time in government. America's criminal legal system did not get this way overnight. <laughs> um, we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred years for, for sure, I mean, coming straight out of chattel slavery um, into, right, utilizing uh, jails and prisons to, to continue slave labor, to the war on drugs in the 70s, which really was a war on black bodies. But let's just sit in the 1990s for a minute, as you do in, in the book. Um, you had the crack epidemic. You had um, lots of violence in, in, in our communities. Um, and, and, and you had and black folks, a lot of them at that time, at least the ones that were being pushed to the front saying, we want the 1994 crime bill. We want three strikes because we just want the violence to end. Talk about, but, that, but then, right, we, we ended up with no safer communities and thousands of our loved ones funneled into jails and prisons, um, which actually then creates more unsafe communities because one of the number one indicators of a safe community is an intact family, regardless of how that family is made up. What have we forgotten from that time period that went so wrong? You know, there's um, such an urgent need to take a look at that time period in um, American history and, and really ask what were the outcomes. And one of the less discussed outcomes from the 90s tough on crime era 
um, above and beyond, you know, extreme incarceration rates, extreme racial disparities in arrest and incarceration, there was actually a huge amount of discrimination against people being hurt by crime and violence. When I grew up, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s here in California, that was the height of, you know, what's kind of called the victims' rights movement in the U.S., where you had victims' groups arm in arm with, uh, you know, law enforcement associations calling, you know, build more prisons now, kind of the chant of the time. And there's a, that's sort of a convenient political call, but the actual real world impact on on victims in particular was devastating. Um, you know, we uh, built up this enormous set of criminal justice bureaucracies. Those bureaucracies became the sort of mantle of the the face of public safety in state houses across the country. They were calling for tougher and tougher sentences, but none of that buildup of criminal justice bureaucracies or expansion of sentencing really changed the real world experiences of the vast majority of people hurt by crime and violence. Um, you know, when you look at um, you know the everyday experiences of victims. For most victims, especially victims of color and victims from low-income communities, the justice system does not provide justice or help, right? We're talking um, very little capacity to investigate or solve uh, difficult crimes and no capacity to give a helping hand to people in need. So, and that's what, you know, kind of at the time was called the pathway to safety, right? If we don't re-examine it now, we're really at risk of making the same mistake. I, I, I would argue when we're going to talk about where we're at right now that we are actually in the process of, of making the same mistake when you look at the types of laws um, that are being passed, when you look at some call it a recall, I call it a coup uh, of progressive uh, district attorneys. Um, and, and the fight over defund. But I want to hold that for just a, a second. You start the book um, with the story of Oswald Thomas. Can you tell us his story and why that is sort of the launch pad in this first chapter uh, of the book? Sure. Well, Oswald is a remarkable leader and a, and a dear friend. Um, you know, he, uh, when he was 26 years old, he was on his way to Europe uh, to begin his professional basketball career after having just graduated from college. Um, he was shot um, in front of a convenience store uh, while he, when he ran in to buy orange juice. Um, you know, he was shot nine times, um, ended up in the emergency room. Uh, those bullets, um, you know, nearly uh, ended his life. Uh, but he survived. Um, after surviving uh, that, and again, this is the year 2009, um, he was, you know, discharged from the hospital, um, you know, with, uh, you know, a bag of, uh, inst you know, instructions and, and medication and uh, released right back into the same uh, neighborhood where uh, the uh, attempted robbery and shooting at the convenience store happened. And um, that was the, his long road to recovery began right then. No referral to victim compensation, 
no um, interactions with a justice system, um, you know, that was looking to help him with um, everything from relocation assistance to um, figuring out new career pathways to paying medical bills, um, you know, um, therapeutic support, no support, um, a bag of medication. That was, you know, his, his experience. And that is a common experience. Um, one of the things I love about working with Aswad, who's a leader in Alliance for Safety and Justice, is he always says, "I, you know, I tell my story not because it's unusual, but because it's actually usual. This is common. This is what happens all the time. Well, um, he was able, you know, through um, his own, um, you know, uh, family and community of support uh, to recover and went on to kind of change the course of his life and become a victim's rights advocate himself today. Um, but that happened in spite of how the justice system responded to him, not because of it. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Lenore Anderson to discuss her book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. The timing of the book, I, I think, couldn't be more perfect. It, it feels like we are in a time warp back to the 1990s. And again, people are responding to what is actually an economic-driven spike in violent crime. Um, by demanding more cops, more jails, more prisons, and not just in conservative areas of the country, right here in Oakland, California, where we both live. And we've seen play out in this election, this call to be tougher on crime, this call to um, increase the number of police officers we have to 900, which will literally bankrupt the city. Um, And we've seen this fracture along race, class, um, and I'd say generations, right? Like, and by generations, I mean generations of folks that have been here and generations of folks that might be just got here. I mentioned the, the recall of Chessa uh, across the bay. How do you interrupt the fear mongering, the manipulation of the fear and trauma, while at the same time acknowledging, right? Because I, I sit with, with mothers weekly that have lost their children to these streets. Um, and are only presented with one pathway to so-called justice. Yeah, the um, the most important um, thing I think that we've learned in my work through Alliance for Safety and Justice is listening first. Um, we have to have public systems learn some humility and learn how to engage with uh, folks who have been unprotected by the justice system um, in a way that offers uh, people a voice in public policy. Um, you know, we've uh, interviewed, I think at this point, about 10,000 um, different uh, survivors of crime across the United States uh, over the last decade of, of doing our organizing work. And one of the things that stands out so strong uh, from all the engagement we've done is the the similarity of, you know, most everyday people who have not been protected, who have been hurt by crime and violence, want what happened to them to never happen again. Well, the traditional criminal justice solutions can't deliver that. They, they, they are not equipped to protect most victims, and they're certainly not equipped to do a great job at stopping cycles of crime. 
the good news, and I think, you know, sort of in holding that balance that you're talking about, Kat, where we want to acknowledge we have both a broken criminal justice system and an urgent need for safety. We want to hold both of those truths at the same time. The good news is that when you're listening, when when the first priority is listening to people who have been hurt, you not only hear the failures, you also start to unravel real-time, real-world solutions that can be applied. There are so many remarkable survivor-led organizations across the country that are um, you know, stopping uh, cycles of crime, that are providing trauma recovery services, re-entry support, uh, mental health support. You know, those are the solutions that should really be driving our public safety strategies moving forward. And those are solutions coming from survivors them, themselves. I, I, I think the other thing, um, right, so there's the listening and then there's the relationship building. Because if you're going to organize with folks or, or advocate with folks, for folks, there's got to be relationship. There's also the the job of, at some point, in the, de- the decon- deconstruction of the lie that folks have been told about what keeps them safe i.e. we incarcerate more people than any other country on the planet, and yet here we are. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book, I, I in fact, the whole I have a whole chapter called the the public safety myth, right? Yeah. And, and and I was in, intentional in putting this in there because you know I think it's important. We value safety greatly, at, 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 at you know, and as we should. And so it's important to ask the question, well, has what we've said is going to get us safe actually do that? And there are so many myths that have driven crime policy in the United States for the last 40 years. One of the biggest myths is this idea that more incarceration equals less crime. Um, you know, the National Academy of Sciences, right? This is, you know, they they they, they do comprehensive research, right? They're, this is the, literally the United States National Academy of Science. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, you know, not anything that I could do. They put together a comprehensive 500 plus page report looking top to bottom, up and down, every angle of the impact of incarceration on the United States and concluded that lengthy sentences are an ineffective crime control measure, that all of this mass incarceration has not correlated with reduced crime. We've got to understand that, we've got to accept that, and we've got to abandon that as the, as the solution. You know, there are other myths um, that I uh, unpack in the book. Um, and, you know, another myth is that all of the buildup of the criminal justice bureaucracies really um, went a long way towards reducing um, crime and violence. And that's also not true. You know, when you look at the data and the research, um, you know, the causes of crime, as you were indicating, you know, it's economics, it's desperation, um, you know, there's so many, you know, substance use disorder, there's so many multifaceted, complex societal drivers, um, you know, structural racism, um, you know, inside our public systems, you know, all of these things are not going to be solved by um, building up uh, the criminal justice bureaucracies. And so we need to be honest about that. And then we need to ask ourselves, if those are the myths that we're not going to hold on to anymore, where do we go for solutions? 
I want to sit with this public safety myth for just a little bit longer. I would love for you to talk about, because I think this is really relevant to the conversation right now, the tough gang sentencing myth. You know, the California um, is the home to most of this, you know. Um, you, 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 Progressive we, old California, come on now, <laughs> <laughs> the the this is one of the things that you know is always surprising to people um you know because California has done quite a bit to reform you know criminal justice in the last decade but when you look at the history of mass incarceration the history of the of the law and order brand of victims rights that all came from it was birthed and housed in California and exported to California to other parts of the country you know in the 90s um, you know, in the governor's race in Florida, the candidates were talking about wanting to be more like California <laughs> because, <laughs> seriously, because of how tough California was, okay, um, in criminal justice. That's just to give the listeners a flavor to, you know, how how aggressively, um, you know, tough on crime our home state was back then. Well, similarly, um, you know, the toughest gang uh, enhanced law in the nation was 1988. It was called the STEP Act. um, And it was uh, an uh, an act that uh, was passed into law very quickly in response to um, a a person who was killed in uh, Los Angeles, uh, who unrelated to any of the gang violence. Uh, She was in a uh, shopping in a sort of a nicer neighborhood, sort of like an upper class neighborhood shopping. She was shot and killed. And in response to that, uh, there was sort of a wave of legislation passed in in the state of California. And one of them was the STEP Act. I mentioned that history because that's often what happens, right? There's a there's sort of what the media defines as a sort of a, a, a victim uh, that has a certain profile that we're going to care about. Often that's on class and race lines, um, and then that leads to this you know swell groundswell of very tough incarceration policies. But then when you look at the impact of those policies, they didn't work in California. The Step Act you know, was one of a series of moves that the government made to um, get really, quote unquote, tough on gangs. And, um, you know, many studies have come out, um, especially looking at Los Angeles um, gang membership and gang violence, demonstrating that, in fact, those hyper tough laws not only did not contribute to reductions in gang violence, but actually we saw an increase in gang membership uh, and gang violence over the same time period that those laws were getting tougher and tougher. We could spend our time together just in this chapter, but we're going to do one more and then I promise we will move on. Um, but again, I think really relevant to the conversation we're having about guns right now. Where, where, where is the myth uh, in the tough on gun laws? Yeah. So the, you know, there's been, um, you know, I talk, I talk about in the book, you know, in, in, in Illinois, there was a, uh, a move to, um, make even more stringent the, uh, length of time people serve, uh, for illegal guns, expanding that out, extending that out. 
um, from, you know, five years mandatory to 10, that type of thing. Um, I'm not quoting the law exactly, but those types of um, extensions of sentence length related to um, illegal guns. And the claim at the time was, well, if this passes, we'll see gun violence reduction by 50%. Uh, Well, gun violence, you know, the law changed and gun violence uh, rates did not uh, go down at that at that pace, and it's important to sort of unpack that and look at um, well, if that's not happening, why, right? And one of the things that uh, researchers looked at in Illinois was uh, just the numerous different factors that go into decision making as it relates to um, guns, and one of the things that. Uh, has not been demonstrated is that the length of sentence attached to um, this crime doesn't drive decision making. It's not the main thing that is going to change whether or not a person um, engages in holding illegal guns or not. Um, there's a, a lack of safety at the neighborhood level and community level um, that is a bigger factor in a lot of decision making. It's critical that we look at this um, not to say we should not do something about these cycles of violence and crime. In fact, we should. We should do more, um, but we have to do it in partnership with the community so that we can get the right solutions. A lot of the research on um, cycles of gun violence in particular lift up what's called a public health model, right? Which is a a public health response to a public health problem. Um, This is um, you know, looking at uh, ways to, uh, you know, hold gun manufacturers more accountable for sure, um, and to also uh, partner with community leaders who can be assets in stopping cycles of crime and violence and give community members a co-equal seat at the table with uh, public agencies in, in solving this problem. So when we look at the penal code, you know, the, the sentencing structure, um, that has been viewed as like a one-size-fits-all solution to these problems. And there's, there's just no evidence that it that has ever been able to do that. Well, and, and I think particularly the conversation around guns is an argument for addressing root causes because it actually makes all of the sense in the world that folks in the flats of Oakland, in deep east in the west, are carrying firearms because of the condition that the states have created inside of those communities that make them war zones. There are a lot of models out there, um, and you know I know there's so many phenomenal leaders in here in Oakland working, um, you know, working to uh, stop cycles of of gun violence. Um, Shout out know, to Urban Peace Movement. Shout out to Courage. Just to absolutely, my head. Urban Grisham. Peace. Yeah, Urban Peace Movement. Youth Alive. There's so many. Um, so first and foremost, let's make sure those organizations have a, an equal seat at the table with government. Make sure those organizations have the resources that they need to do the life-saving work they're doing, literally saving lives. 
so in a, you know so all of those things need to happen in addition we need to look at uh, the data and see what's working um, you know I talk often my um, dear friend uh, who I also is in the book Akila Shareels um, mm. you know he comes out of Newark New Jersey they've reduced gun yeah. violence significantly there um, through you know, doing this, um, you know, violence interruption, the Newark community street team violence interruption model. And so looking at when and where we can show that this community partnership makes a difference. Yeah, there's some really, really great models in Chicago as well. Um, all right. We've, we've talked about resources uh, twice now, so I'm just going to go there. Uh, Oakland has the longest running defund campaign in the country. The truth about defund, and I know because APTP launched it, was was about getting the resources into the hands of the organizations that could actually stop violence. Police do not stop violence for the most part. They respond to it. And yet, from the very people that say that they care the most about having safer streets, we saw the biggest pushback and disinformation campaign. And so... You, you referred to some folks, right, inside of the system as folks that do want to stop violence, but fighting efforts like that to redirect resources to things that will actually stop crime and ignoring, to your point, the data that comes out of folks. I say it all the time. People smarter than me. This is not just radical cat Brooks' mouth. These are people that actually, like, got more than their bachelor's, which is all I got, and spend their time researching this stuff. It's ignored. It is bla- willfully ignored. Why you know, when um, it's a great question, Kat, and I, I would say, I, you know, I have a couple different thoughts on it. Um, one is w- when I was in government, uh, one of the things I observed is that, um, you know, c- city and county agencies are uh, very adept at um, advocating for resources for that agency. Um, you know, there's sort of a, you know, um, we call the justice system a system, um, but it's actually really not a system at all. It's a set of um, individual uh, public uh, agencies that uh, advocate for their own programs, their own money, their own resources, their own, frankly, discretion and authority to do what they do in that agency. But very rarely are um, all of those agencies uh, kind of required to collaborate uh, co-equally with community or even with other um, public agencies like the health system. If it, and so that leads to sort of this aggressive advocacy on behalf of these individual agencies without anyone being held accountable for looking at the whole picture. What's actually working, what's not? Sometimes it's not that there's not enough money. It's that that money is not being, no one's being held accountable for whether or not that money is actually changing lives. Um, So, you know, I think that's one of the big problems. The other challenge, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, is this, you know, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, when you look at, you know, sort of student teacher ratio, when you look at, um, you know, this concept in the public health field called medically underserved 
uh, regions where they, uh, you know, look at how many physicians per, um, you know, 10,000 residents, um, you know, yeah. housing ratios. There are ratios in other aspects of, of government where we have a basic sense of like, okay, um, you know, are we doing right by these kids if that's the student-teacher ratio is one teacher for every 30 kids? We have a public understanding of like, oh, that's probably not doing right by those kids. We need more teachers for that school. Well, we could do a similar thing. It does not exist, but what is the ratio? How many trauma recovery centers, how many street violence interruption workers would we need for a community to actually be equipped to prevent violence? How many mental health crisis assistance workers would we need? How many reentry specialists? I think if we could apply the logic that has worked in other areas to say, look, this must become an essential violence prevention service. We just don't have enough people at the community level in these peer-based programs. Then we could funnel a lot more money to those solutions and actually equip communities to be the leaders on prevention. Call me a pessimist, but I think that even that argument would be pushed back on by police associations here in Oakland and across the country. I think folks are interested in protecting their bloated budgets, and I think that there is a, a fear of a loss of power and control should community be empowered and folks start to see that maybe the status quo is not worth investing as much in anymore. You know, there is a real, um, you know, gap uh, between what many of the associations say um, versus what, you know, would really actually make a difference if, if safety were the top concern. I think that there's a problem when we have, I mean, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that in response to a genuine call, like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, a genuine call for like, we need to help victims. There are way too many people getting hurt who are being ignored by our justice system. That is true. In response to that real call, the political solution was to put a bunch of money into these huge bureaucracies who then grew triple, quadrupled in size and got all the more lobbyists, all the more <laughs> you know, resources to lobby their own interests in state houses across the country. And then they also kind of became, you know, the face of sort of the sort of synonymous with what legislators sort of understood as, oh, that's the public safety stakeholders. Those are the public safety lobbyists. But that never, where was the community in that, right? Like where and at what point did the community get its own set of lobbyists? Did the community get to be seen as the, as the safety stakeholders? And so I think that was one of the foundational mistakes that happened back then that we're still paying for today because those associations do, to your point, represents the, represent the interests of the association, not the interests of people who've been hurt. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We're in conversation with Lenore Anderson about her book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. All right, I'll stop cornering you into a conversation about um, policing. Um, I, I have been thinking, APTP has been thinking a lot about trauma, right? And, and the fact 
that, you know, when there is a shooting, let's say on my block, um, very rarely does a trauma responder show up. Um, 80,000 cop cars show up. Um, there's not consideration for not only just the the victim, their immediate, you know, friends and families, but the whole community, right, that is impacted every time there is a murder um, on on our streets. And one of the things that you point out that survivors talk about is in, a need for trauma supports. And I, I want you to spend a couple of minutes talking about why that's such a important piece of moving towards a public safety system that may actually work. Yeah, we um, began organizing um, survivors um, across California in uh, 2013, and then uh, took our organizing model to other states um, since then. And we have about 150,000 um, survivor members across the country. And so we do regular surveys, um, we do regular um, focus groups, and you know, input. We have policy retreats in each of our state to get the input of our members as we develop policy advocacy strategies. The issue of unaddressed trauma comes up more than any issue in terms of something that solution is needed for now. Um, so when we began, uh, you know, we asked the question, you know, what would make a difference um, right now that we could advocate for in terms of allocation of resources for better public safety, trauma recovery, trauma healing, addressing trauma, um, unlifting the veil, uh, up, you know, talking about the, the cycle of trauma. So we started advocating for uh, these programs called trauma recovery centers. Um, there's now 12 in, in different parts of, of the state. Uh, there's about 41 across the country. It started just one in, in San Francisco. But the reason that this model kind of became something that we started championing is because it was more than just, you know, sort of long-term therapeutic support, which is critical which we advocate for all the time, but embedded in the trauma recovery center model is real-time immediate crisis support and assistance. It's hard for folks who have been hurt by crime and violence to you know, in, in only focus on sort of longer term challenges when they're still unsafe today, right? You know, not getting access to the ability to get say, into safe housing, not getting support in terms of being able to find alternative pathways for work if you're injured and you can't maintain your current employment, um, you know, re compensation, um, you know, all the impact on children, uh, you know, helping children recover in terms of school. There's so many different layers to the you know, sort of immediate and lasting impact of experiencing a traumatic event. Well, this is a model that can address that, that can help people uh, stabilize and get um, their lives on track, but also provide that long-term therapeutic support. Um, you know, this is community-based. I think there should be a trauma recovery center on every corner. And it's, you know, and it's one of the things that we kind of pushed for is to use victim compensation money for this model, right? These are hundreds of millions of dollars, oftentimes unspent. Um, so this is yet again an opportunity to have the money match the need and to really put money towards healing trauma. If we could wave a magic wand and Lenore Anderson became the director of creating a safe America, a real one, <laughs> 
That'd be a great title. What, <laughs> uh, what would you enact right away? Like, what are the elements? Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> well, after I get my brand new business card with that title, <laughs> that'll be step one. Um, you know, there there's a few things that I think um, are both um, urgent and also possible. Um, first is that, um, you know, when it comes to victims' rights, um, a lot of the emphasis of that um, era uh, was on courtroom proceedings um, and on rights within the criminal justice process. What we know is that that's not a process that m- many survivors uh, have access to or uh, feel supported by. So, you know, I, I talk in the book about this idea of the a right to trauma recovery, um, that that's a sort of um, a new right uh, that victims uh, should have and that would include immediate and long-term support to heal from harm, uh, whether that's accommodations at work or housing, whether that's ensuring that all uh, kids who've been exposed to violence get accommodations at school, um, get access to safe uh, places to be after school, um, you know, all of the things that would help people who've experienced trauma um, have safe opportunities to recover. Uh, that would be my top goal is a right to trauma recovery. Um, the second thing is that we need to scale up the community-based safety solutions that are already changing lives that are already making a huge difference at the neighborhood level. We need, you know, we have scaled up before. Let's be clear. We went from, you know, a relative insignificance of the justice system in politics in the United States to it being one of the most influential uh, set of public agencies, um, a 700% increase in spending on criminal justice over a 30-year time period in this country. So we know how to scale up when we believe in what we're scaling, right? So we could do the same thing. We could take that same logic and say, actually, we didn't scale up where we needed to. Let's take a huge amount of public resources, put it at the neighborhood level, provide it to the community-based organizations and the peer-led organizations who can make a new way forward in terms of safety, whether it's trauma recovery or violence prevention, mental health, um, you know, re-entry. That'd be my second uh, priority. I think, you know, third is that uh, we really need to ask different questions. Um, You know, one of the challenges in the world of crime policy is we rely on a very limited set of data. It's basically the public systems sort of workload data, right? How many arrests, how many convictions, right? None of that is actually really telling us very much about vulnerability. It's not telling us very much about real human beings' needs to be safe. Um, You know, we know a lot about who's vulnerable, right? We just don't do a lot about helping them. So we need to change our data and change our focus to be from the workload of the justice system to the needs of vulnerable community members so we can offer a line of help and offer real protection. And then, you know, Kat, the last thing I would say is that we really need to change our definition of justice. Um, you know, for, for, for many decades, um, the tough on crime era kind of convinced American culture that excessive punitiveness is justice 
that that's how we deliver justice as a society. But in fact, it's one of the most dangerous things we could possibly do. And so we need to think about stopping cycles of crime, stopping cycles of harm, stopping cycles of violence as justice. If we actually prevented people who have been hurt by crime and violence and people who have uh, been convicted of hurting others from spiraling into worsened poverty, worsened societal exclusion, if we can stop that from happening and then actually focus on repair, that should be how we define justice. Well, when it comes time, I will vote for you as... (laughs) (laughs) Director of Making America Safe for Reels, Lenora Anderson. We're going to leave it there. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've been in conversation with Lenora Anderson about her book, In Their Names, The Untold Story of Victims' Rights, Mass Incarceration, and the Future of Public Safety. Lenora Anderson is the founder and president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, which has won reforms to reduce incarceration and expand community safety programs across the country. She's a former chief of policy at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, former director of public safety for the Oakland mayor, and the recipient of the James Irvine Foundation Leadership Award, and a lot more. She lives with her family in Oakland, and this is her first book. Lenore, thank you so much for this conversation and for joining us today. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>